In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to a wonderful edition of the True Life Podcast. I hope whether you are in a winter wonderland or you happen to find yourself where the sun is shining and the birds are singing and the wind is at your back, regardless of where you are, I hope you realize that you have some gifts around you and you can bathe in their warmth. I have an incredible show for you today with the one and only Reverend Dr. Jessica Rochester. She is the Madrina and president of the Sud de Montreal at Santo Daime Ayahuasca Church. She founded in 1997 in Montreal, Canada. She's a transpersonal counselor, trained in the work of Dr. Roberto Asagioli and trained with Dr. Stanislav Graf. She worked with Health Canada from 2000 to 2017 to achieve a Section 56 exemption to import and serve the Santo Daime Sacrament. She's an ordained interfaith minister with a doctorate in divinity. From 1986 to 2018, she has been a workshop leader, teacher, and in private practice. She is the author of Ayahuasca Awakening, A Guide to Self-Discovery, Self-Mastery, and Self-Care, Volume 1 and Volume 2. She continues to lecture on consciousness, non-ordinary states of consciousness, self-discovery, spiritual development, health and well-being, and personal transformation. She's on a mission to inspire and empower those who seek the adventure of self-discovery, those who hope to awaken consciousness to rediscover authenticity, to find meaning in everyday life, and cultivate deep connections with oneself and others and with nature. Dr. Jessica, we are so thankful you're here today. I hope you're doing well. Thank you for having me. It's always a joy to be on your show. We wander around on so many wonderful topics. I hope it's interesting for the listening public. And um, today we agreed to talk about some interesting things, some things that only I find a few people are talking about. And so I'll give a shout out to them in a moment. So I want to talk about vulnerability, okay? And how it's really an issue that has to be addressed for people who are working in non-ordinary states of consciousness on both sides, for the participant and for the practitioner. 
Okay, so I'm, I'm not going to, I'm just going to put that umbrella over it. So that can be inclusive of ritual leaders. It can be inclusive of therapeutic uh, and research use, clinical use. Okay, so it's inclusive that for participants, whether it's in a congregation or a research study, and for the practitioner, whether it is a, an elder or a senior in a ritual of a heritage tradition or religious tradition, or whether it is a researcher or practitioner clinician in a clinic, that we need to just kind of have a little look at vulnerabilities on both sides and understanding where does that take everybody to? What guidelines are needed for individuals and teachers and guides? And so we've, we've talked a lot about ethics and kind of what we haven't talked about so much is, is kind of two pieces of that. You know, I've been tossing out ethic codes. People are interested, go to my website, go to our church website, you know, go to the paper we published, Entheogens and Psychedelics in Canada, Proposal for a New Paradigm. We drafted up a suggested a code of ethics for people who were working in the field. So there's, you know, at this point, there's lots of good information around, you know, ethics and how to conduct yourself and what kind of guidelines. But, but vulnerability and what it means in the non-ordinary state of consciousness, because vulnerability is super heightened. You know, anybody going into a situation, whether it's a yoga class or you know, an ayahuasca ceremony or a Santo Dani church, whatever, there's going to be a certain level of vulnerability because I'm opening myself up in a community or in a public forum. And, you know, what is that for me? And how does the practitioner, um, how, does, how does all that vulnerability get managed? And what's the responsibility of the participant? And what's, this, what's the responsibility of the practitioner? So, you know, there's one thing between, you know, going into kind of starting a new yoga class. There's another going into a new therapist's office. There's all these different levels of vulnerability. And the more the practitioner understands that a code of ethics and ethical conduct is there to protect them as much as it is to protect the participants. Okay. And the, they themselves keeping healthy boundaries and understanding that they have their own vulnerabilities. And again, you know, I'm sure I've, I've shouted her out again, but Kylie Taylor's book, The Ethics of Caring, she just does a spectacular job of addressing caregivers' vulnerabilities. And so I encourage all the listeners, please, you know, if you're working in the field, understand that your own vulnerabilities are going to become heightened as much as the person taking the substance. There is, those of you who work in the field are going to understand what I'm talking about. You don't have to take the substance to kind of enter into the field. Um, back in the 70s, we used to call it a contact guy. Nah. <laughs> That's an old term. I don't think people right. use it anymore. But, you know, it, it actually happens. Um, it's a real thing, okay, that we used to talk about and laugh about in the 70s, um, in which you would be in the presence of somebody who would be in an altered state, and something about your own state would become affected or influenced by that person being in that state. And, and so this is something that I don't see it anywhere being talked about, you know, are people understanding that the vulnerability increases on both sides? 
the sensibilities, the sensitivities to um, smell, all the senses, okay, are going to be heightened. Um, our, our unconscious biases are going to be, you know, vibrating um, at a different level, let's put it that way. And then there comes suggestibility. So before mm. we start talking about suggestibility in a non-ordinary state, do you have any comments, questions about that state of vulnerability that is achieved on both sides in working in non-ordinary states of consciousness? I do. It, I'm curious about, it almost sounds like we're speaking upon the relationships to and fro for vulnerability. Like when you come into contact with somebody, how do you manage that relationship with them? Because your relationship with that person is different than your relationship with their vulnerability, isn't it? Well, it, it, yes. I mean, everybody, <laughs> everybody who gets into a romantic relationship and falls in love understands vulnerability. Okay, yeah. the first way you know the boundaries collapse right. and right. And, and the first thing that happens is we feel really dreadfully vulnerable, don't we? Yeah. I mean, even if we're practiced romantics, is that such a thing? <laughs> you know, even if we've been in love a time or two before, it still catches us unawares. And how deeply, you know, we're revealing ourselves and how vulnerable that feels. So this gets heightened in the non-ordinary state of consciousness. And, you know, as you say, what's the relationship? Well, if you have, let's say, let's use the example of a clinician who's working with maybe, um, uh, you know, a psychedelic, uh, MDMA, look at all the ones that are now being licensed in certain areas, psilocybin or MDMA. Mm -hmm research projects and for post-traumatic stress disorder and ketamine and you know there's various um, projects and, and clinical settings in which these non-ordinary states of consciousness are being achieved through the use of substances and that's all fine and good and the research is indicating that this is beneficial and you know more research is the better um, at the same time is who's talking about those vulnerabilities on both sides and, and how do we talk about that? Is that yeah. part of the preparation? Um, you know, for me, what seems to be a really important part is, you know, the practitioner can't be, I don't know, this is like new territory, but I don't think the practitioner can be sitting there saying to the prospective person who's going to be in the non-ordinary state, you know, I feel a little vulnerable when you're in that non-ordinary state. So here's the case for elders, mentoring, right. support groups, colleagues, you know, that's really important in everyday life, but in non-ordinary states, it becomes even more important to have a community of senior team, elders, colleague, um, you know, Stan Groff, when he was doing his work, you know, he made sure that everyone on his team, you know, that they had, you know, like decompression sessions, okay? And um, in my, when I was training with him and then staffing uh, with him and Jack Corkfield in retreats, um, it, it, the team got together at the end of the day and we discussed issues that came up for us that we weren't sure if we handled them well, you know, and this wasn't just part of the training. This was part of the ongoing important dialogue that should be happening is that we need to be, whether, you know, certainly the practitioners need to have that support system of colleagues, uh, a team, to be able to explore, you know, what's coming up for me and 
and how I handle the situation and, and you know, going forward. Yeah, those kind of conversations, I think, are essential. What do you think? Yeah, I, I don't have the experience in 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 altered states of consciousness in a, in a, in a practice with anybody. I mean, I, I have explored some interesting states and I have journeyed together with people that I care about. I'm not quite like, I, I don't feel qualified to do it I, on some level. It scares me to think that if I find myself in a position where I'm unsure of something and I try to help someone in another direction, you know, the same way if you and I are in a boat and we're going to a destination, but if you pick one course to the course structure to the right, you could end up in a completely different destination. And I've right. been, yeah, I've been there on myself. I'm like, how did I get here? So I don't, you know, maybe, maybe you could, maybe you could share a story about being vulnerable and being in a position where it's uncharted territories. Yeah. Uncharted territory. Well, I've got a few <laughs> interesting stories. I'm not sure if they fit a hundred percent, but they're the ones that pop up into mind. Okay. So here for me is an example of, of, you know, vulnerability on, on the part of the more the participant. Okay. okay? And, and, you know, being who I am and the certain trainings and life experiences and being somewhat senior in, in the work that I do, um, thank God I had enough sensibilities to yeah. be able to look at a situation and say, wow, okay, you know. So here, here I'll unfold it for you, the story. Okay. So, so here's the story. Um, uh, I, I had been in the early days of my participation in following the tradition of the Santo Daimi. Um, I and and our growing center had been connected to a number of different churches. The original one in in, in Napia and uh, one of the main branches in the Santo Daimi at the time, and another church that was in Rio de Janeiro, who was led by a very charismatic individual who had started traveling throughout. Um, United States and Canada. And I had some concerns had been, I'd, I had some serious concerns as, you know, I was unfamiliar in the beginning with the culture, unfamiliar with the language. And so there's a lot of things that you miss. And that is the first vulnerability. Okay. The first vulner, vulnerability for the practitioner, for the, you know, the person, the participant is if you don't know the language and you don't know the culture. Okay. And so this is a big part of what has to be um, an important part of the conversation with people who are doing all of this traveling uh, to South America to participate in a lot of different things or Mexico, Central America. And so and I, I, as I started to understand things and speak more to people and, and I started to realize that there was some there was some what I considered to be ethical challenges there. And I started to find ways to address them. And so I wrote him Code of Ethics uh, based on Jack Cornfield's book. This is in the year 2000. And I think this book was published in uh, 1999, maybe something like that. And so I was ecstatic, wrote up a Code of Ethics, you know, took it to this elder. He kind of started reading it, held it like this, and handed it back to me. He says, maybe your government needs this, but I don't. And I went, hmm, problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I thanked him, put it on one side, okay. Shortly thereafter, he's traveling, and I'm invited to go down to 
you know, um, to visit. I won't mention where in the United States, but it was supposed to be this big work. And I kind of heard tell that he was developing some new kind of mediumship ways of working. And so I've, I've my mediumship opened decades ago. People, if you've read my books, I tell the story of how that started to open. And so I've had wonderful teachers. I've had the gift of, of working with great spiritual guides. And, um, you know, I'm still on my journey and consider myself to still be an apprentice, even though I'm considered kind of a teacher. I'm, I, I'm really clear that, I, that this is something you keep learning until your last breath and maybe get it, you know, the st next step into the next lifetime. And, and so it's he's kind of developing a new kind of mediumship, uh, a kind of sense of new work. And I think, okay, this would be interesting. So um, off I go and uh, the work opens. And he starts doing some things that I had never seen before in the Santa Planning, which I was sure wasn't actually at all um, part of the Santa Planning. Mm. And hauling people up to the front and, and, and cracking them open on the mediumship level. And uh, I'm looking askance at this thinking, what is this really about? So I go inside, I pray, I ask my guides. My guides, my main guide says to me, stay in your place. Because I'm thinking, I'd like to get up and leave, but you don't leave. It's not funny. It's part of, you don't you wait till the end of the work. And if you have a thing, you deal with it, right? And so I'm sitting thinking, I'm, uh, I'm not ever going to be in another thing like this. I, this is not, this is, there's something really off here, okay? He's opening He's opening doors in the astral to dark realms. I mean, this is not the Santa Dining, okay? It is not the Santa Dining. And so I'm sitting there and I'm in my place. I'm sitting actually at the altar because I'm considered senior in the North American scheme of things. So I'm sitting there and I'm having this conversation with my guide saying, get me out of here. <laughs> Please get me out of here. Can't just get me out of here. And so, Basically, my guide says to me, stay in your place, stay firm, sing and pray, close all your doors, don't let any of this affect you, and don't ever do this again. Okay, don't ever do this again. You will not be in this man's presence again. You will not participate in this again. I'm going, right, <laughs> cut, my, cut my orders. <laughs> okay, sat it out until the end of the work, and that was it, because you know, I want to say a little bit about mediumship as yeah. I understand it and what is not permitted in our church and which is not permitted um, usually in, in, in the main, you know, traditional Santo Dani churches. And and uh, I call them my friend the box. So you don't find anybody. This or oral tradition. So I've codified a lot of things. So in our church, this is the rules of the Salau. The Salau is the sanctuary. Okay. It's called the Salau. And this is the rules of the slow on mediumship. Okay, number one, no examining and staring into people's space. Okay, now this is a this is a really well known one in the Santo Dani. You don't sit in a work and stare into people. Okay, you don't stare. You close your eyes. You go inside. You're there to do your own personal work. Okay, so no staring into people's space, and no touching people without permission. This is very common in the Santo Dani. And with intentions other than what is needed for their safety mm. and well-being or by their request. Common guidelines in the Santa Dani. So if people go into what we call the healing area and they need to lie down. If they ask, please hold my hand or please, you know, something. 
Okay, then the guardian, called the guardian on duty, will do what they can to support. Well, we don't go touching people unless it's for their own safety or well-being. Looks like you're about to fall off your chair. Guess what? You're probably going to get touched. Okay, somebody's going to come and say, "Come lie down." Okay, or they're catching you as you're falling. Um, we really ask people if you feel a little dizzy, go lie down. Don't wait until you're falling off your chair. Okay. So third thing, doing psychic readings. That is telling people anything about what was is seen in their space. So in other words, no staring into people's face, no reading their aura, no reading their past lives, none of this stuff, okay? Such as, and here's the, here's the real key, is the people who feel that I see darkness, I see your past lives, I see you have a dark being, all of this. This is a thing that is happening. Okay, it's a thing that is happening. It may be part of some people's belief systems, and that's okay if it's part of your belief system. Okay, but don't bring that in in places where people are vulnerable. Mm. Here, the suggestibility is incredibly sensitive. Okay, so no psychic readings. You're not allowed in our in our center in our church. You're not allowed to go and say after work. Oh, by the way, I see you have a dark being. You have this and that. Uh uh go somewhere else okay claims of being a healer this is also something that is happening this is you know and in part you know what we're talking about now is the people who are self-acclaimed you know that recently i wrote a number of posts and about people please don't call yourself a healer and the reasons why and and the challenges to people who are self-acclaimed you know kind of the main one being is is that it's so easy to fall in those traps of kind of thought forms and narcissistic bubbles. Mm -hmm. And the people who are self-acclaimed often operating alone, they don't need any supervision, they don't need any training, they don't need anything, they've got it all, you know, God spoke to them. And 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 that's a problem because we all need we all need colleagues and teamwork and support work to be able to help keep us steady on the path because we're human, you know. So no psychic readings, no claims of being a healer or of being a medium that can heal, remove, revolve, resolve things that they claim to see or read in someone's aura or psychic space. Now, this is vastly different, what's happening in our culture, from the true um, curandera, the healers, um, who are apprenticed and trained in their field the same way as a psychiatrist, a medical doctor, a dentist, an accountant would be, and who studied their whole life with certain gifts where they are in their sacred to hero that people knowingly go to them and knowingly ask for them help. So this is a level of consent. I know that you're known as a Karandera. I know that you work with certain tools. The same way going to the dentist. I know you're going to put something in there. <laughs> okay? So there's a level of consent, which is vastly different from what's happening here, where self-acclaimed healers or people in positions where they're working with vulnerabilities all of a sudden think that they have some kind of healing power or magical powers to do things to people. And, and, and unless you really have the apprenticeship and training to work with that level of mediumship, then that becomes a real danger to everybody's vulnerability. And the thing that I always remind people who are kind of doing that is, um, have you considered liability? 
do you have insurance that if you tell somebody that they're possessed or they have dark beams and they're really unhappy or they're they have you know some kind of a psychological react to this and they're unhappy and they sue you do you have insurance and some people are taken by surprise because it's never occurred to them that liability could be an issue and so this is a real vulnerability on the part of practitioners mm. is they need to sit down and look at what's my liability here and what I'm doing and how I'm conducting myself and the care that I'm giving and the substance that I'm serving to others. What is my level of personal um, liability or, you know, in the place of a clinic? Has that been addressed? And is it a conversation? Do you have that thoughtful look on your face? <laughs> it usually means that you have a question. I'm rattling on here. It's good. the The question that I have in my mind is that there's a there's a similarity between heightened states of awareness and intoxication. And intoxication seems to be something that the power does that certain intoxicants do, and they make us act in a way that is irresponsible. And and that, that relationship to vulnerability. Maybe, maybe the maybe you could speak about the the. I guess the question is the relationship to intoxicants like it sounds like that's what it is in some levels well you know you know alcohol creates or any intoxicant creates right. an ordinary state of consciousness right. Right. you know uh, they're all on the spectrum now now some you're using the word intoxicant that's fine certain lower our consciousness right they right. they lower our inhibitions they lower our you know kind of self um, you know, our ability to connect with inner wisdom and self-awareness seems to like really be dialed down with alcohol. And um, and that's where it becomes a problem because people's vulnerabilities, they can be taken advantage of very much so. And uh, when they're under, when they're inebriated and it's not vastly different. I mean, the state of consciousness in which a person who is drunk is in is vastly different from the state of consciousness. Somebody who has is in a Sankodami ritual or somebody who's in taking MDMA in a sanctioned licensed setting, you know. Um, so there you're going to have the setting and the training and right. the appropriateness by which to guide the person versus getting drunk in a bar. And God knows what happens to you, you know, you fall down and break a leg or somebody drops something in your drink and the next thing you know, you're, you know, you've got problems. Right. So, but they're all non-ordinary states of consciousness. You're absolutely correct. But some of those states, they all have a, a great degree of vulnerability, but right. some of them have more consciousness and some of them have less consciousness. And it so seems to me that we, it does. On a further, if I were to pull on that string a little bit more, it seems that your relationship to authority is the problem when you are not in, maybe if you don't have the lived experience, you know, maybe, maybe that's the difference is, is your inability to, conf or your ability, an individual's ability to confuse power and authority with someone that's vulnerable that's what it seems to be excellent. like excellent very good gold star <laughs> because yes power authority and vulnerability are mm. all tied in together okay anybody who takes a position of authority automatically 
you know, and that's where codes of ethics come in because the doctor, the dentist, the accountant, the lawyer, the therapist, okay, uh, you know, the madrina in the church, oh, there's an authority there that gives you a power and it, it has mm -hmm. to be held ethically. And, you know, uh, all of these vulnerabilities that we have on both sides, you know, the needs of the of the practitioner to be the healer, to be the one who's bringing about all of these wonderful reactions and, and healings. You know, you, you have to take a good look at yourself yeah. um, and, and, and ask yourself, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And who am I doing it for? And what are my vulnerabilities? And how am I managing those in the face of all of this? And those are questions uh, for both sides, for the participant. Why am I here? Why am I doing this? What are my intentions around it? Now, um, we have two other points in our rules of this law and mediumship, which is not diagnosing or interpreting people's spiritual experiences. It's so easy to do that. Um, you know, in my position, and I can point people in, you know, try reading this book, try look, looking at that, um, try considering this, um, you know, except for, um, you know, very clear mediumship openings in which certain beings are now, you know, certain things are happening that it's really obvious that, you know, they need a certain direction in a certain way. And the other thing is, you know, touching any personal objects, either on the altar or the side table, is people don't understand that these things are, are really, you know, I mean, some people go into other people's houses and start touching everything, you know, and it's, it depends on whose house you're in. <laughs> don't touch. <laughs> it depends on whose house you're in. That in, especially in these heightened states, you know, we've had people who kind of become very like two-year-old childlike and they want to go run around the room and touch everything. And, and um, uh, uh, people and things and people's personal stuff. And, and, and so there's this necessity to have healthy boundaries around mm -hmm. everything. And so, you know, we look at vulnerabilities and, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about suggestibility, how in the non-ordinary state of consciousness, when we are vulnerable, how suggestibility is heightened too. How whatever we are, which is why I'm going to just speak for the sample dying, there's no talking. Not allowed to talk in a work. No talking. It's one of the first silence. It's one of the first rules of the Salah. Silence. And uh, no talking unless it's absolutely necessary. And so if in uh, what's called the chain of command, if there's a direction that needs to be given, um, the, it's as simple as possible. You know, if the, if the leader of the work has a few guidelines to give or a few teachings to offer, it's just that. There's no conversations. There's no talking. You don't go and sit with your buddy in the healing area and strike up a conversation. You know, so there's no, there's no talking. Everything is in silence. Everything is. And this reduces the amount of personality engagement and and invitation for projections and transference and counter-transference that can happen so easily in the non-ordinary state. Did you need me to break that down a little bit more? Or did yeah. you get 
I, I think I got a little bit of it. Like it's on some so level. Tell me what you understand. So I, then I can gauge what others might understand. It seems to me in a suggestive state or in the heightened states of awareness, especially in a, in a ceremonial container that everything you do in there has the ability to help you redefine the reality in which you live. And yes. so whether it's an object, a word, a stare, yes. any sort of action can have profound, yeah. like the, like the pond into the ripple water, like it radiates outward and it can have incredible changes. Is that yes. on par? Yes. Yes. You've got it. And, and, the, and so this is, why great care is given to what we wear and how the salah is set and what images are in the room, what is said, the hymns we sing, the prayers we say, the teachings that are offered, that everything is done really carefully because we all understand that everybody's in this heightened state and the suggest suggestibility is really high. Mm. And so that's where anybody working in the field should have a deep understanding about that, about suggestibility. And, and again, here's the, you know, people who were being trained to work in psychedelics and amphiogens where, you know, I'm hoping that's an important part of their training and their education. And that uh, kind of a colleague support group is an important part of um, how they're doing the work and and the kind of feedback that's so helpful and supportive to everyone. And, and, and the, you don't feel anywhere as vulnerable if you know at the end of, let's say, supervising a session in MDMA or psilocybin, that you have you know, a team of people that, whether it's once a week or whatever it is, you have a team of people that you're going to be you know, discussing challenges that arose or vulnerabilities that arose on your own part. And, um, and again, this becomes the problem in the alternative hybrid use is that if, if, if there's a lack of understanding or knowledge about these things, then the likelihood of them happening becomes greater. And, um, you know, how do we honor each person's role and respect each person's role in a way that's healthy for everybody? You know, that's the challenge. How to be for the higher good for all. It's, it seems to me that there, there has to be an understanding of one is both teacher and student. When you break up into groups like that at one time, maybe may, may that comes from playing different roles, but it sure can be confusing trying to switch all those roles. And I'm this person or I'm that person or I'm both people, you know, it's, that, that to me sounds like it would be a part that is very difficult to get used to, especially when you have authority or when you are in a position where something you could, especially when working with someone who could be on the edge of a breakthrough or a breakdown. Yes. <laughs> and, and knowing how to create the space to understand that and support it. Yeah. To know that, you know, as Jan Groff has some wonderful expressions. And he said, breathe until you're surprised. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, that, was, that was wonderful because it let go of expectations and intentions and goal setting and all that jazz. And, um, and, and for the facilitators, you know, what it meant was you're going to be surprised too. <laughs> so <laughs> stay alert, you know. 
stay alert because the facilitators, people working in the breathwork setting, you're going to be surprised too at what may be awoken and how to manage it and how to support it in a way. You know, you were we were talking about suggestibility, yeah. right, and vulnerability. And you asked me to tell you some stories. I told you one. You want another one? Yeah, please. Uh, okay. So this one's kind of a little tricky. It happened during a time, um, the very early days. I had a different, a number of different kind of psychosynthesis trainers when I was going through, as is very normal in psychosynthesis, you know. And so, um, however, uh, you know, you also have individual supervision as well as group supervision. As you know, there's layers of this in the transpersonal work. And so, I remember things coming up for me that I didn't understand. And so I'd spoken to one of the supervisors and, and here the power of suggestibility and the, the, the need for really healthy boundaries. Now, the timing and the era was really important. It was at a time where, I don't know if you remember this or you're aware of it, but kind of through the late 80s, there was a bunch of things that was happening through, let's say through the eighties, there was a bunch of things happening. There was, first of all, everybody was getting UFO'd, right? What happened to that? Well, they were, what, what, what was the term you used? WIFO'd? UFO'd. Yes. Oh, UFO'd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Remember, it was about a decade. I don't remember. It have to like, it's been a while since I've like kind of thought about this, that, Everybody was getting UFO'd. I mean, everybody, you had, you had neighbors of the UFO'd and they all had these stories about what happened up in the spaceship and, you know, and all of this jazz. And I mean, it was really serious researchers looked at it like, what's going on? I remember having a conversation with Stan Groff about it. John Mack, the Harvard psychiatrist, who was like, and the, he looked at this whole field. He happened to be in our group when we first went to Mappy in 1996. So it was still around in the early 90s, okay? And, 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 and he did a whole bunch of research, like what the heck's going on was his position. And he actually had a meeting in, in, at the Pentagon and in the White House with what his findings, what he thought he, unfortunately, he got killed in a, a traffic accident, mm. huge loss to the field, only a few years after that um, in London, in England, didn't look, stepped out, got hit by mm. a bus. What a tragic ending to a wonderful, wonderful man. Anyway, so here's this whole thing going on about UFOs, okay? And and then it kind of melts up and disappears, okay? And then we have this whole thing about false memory syndrome. Remember that one? Mm, yeah. Do you actually hear about it these days? Only from Jules. <laughs> Good point, okay? And, 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 you know, he's addressing the need for ethics and healthy boundaries and and suggestibility he's one of the standout yeah. people who is doing that so you know chapeau <laughs> to, to jules and jules evans for anyone doesn't know who we're ecstatic integration I don't know who we're talking about and and so you know we we had this thing that was happening and it actually tried to happen to me so here i am i have stuff that i'm not sure i i don't have an idea but i can feel something's bubbling up to the surface and it feels young, it feels kind of vulnerable, only later or do I understand that it's body memory of birth, okay? Mm. And um, I was just starting to jump into Stan Groff's work when I was in my psychosynthesis training. So I, I, had an, I made an appointment with one of the supervisors 
And so I, I sat and spoke with her and I said, you know, I'm him. and she immediately says, you must have been incested. Mm. And I said to her, mm, no, I don't think that was possible. <laughs> I, my, my father and you know, my mom certainly had some quirks, but nothing like that. Right. And I know in my body that didn't happen to me. I was appalled that that was said to me. Mm. And then there was, after I, I kind of said, no, I don't think so. There was like digging around. Well, there must have been someone in your early life who, because all of a sudden, you know, th this whole thing was happening around, you know, eight out of 10 women or something have been incested. And I mean, yeah. it's appalling. I ain't pleased. I don't want anybody to think that I am denying at all the, the, the terror, the trauma, the horror of these situations. I am not at all. They happen. It's real. It creates a terrible effect uh, mm -hmm. within the family and on the children. So please don't anybody. I'm just saying, it didn't happen to me. And the suggestion that it had happened to me based on some blurry kind of, you know, blurry sensations, memories that were coming up for me um, was not at all helpful for me. And if I hadn't have had such a, a strong, clear sense of self and what felt right for me and what didn't feel right for me, then can you imagine if I'd gone with that? You know? Yeah, I think... I think it's been happening in, in the world of psychiatry for a long time. You know, people have been wearing their mask of trauma like a badge of honor and become that thing, right? Oh, okay. So, <laughs> How's that for a transition? We're, we're, we're heading in a different, in a different direction. And, and this is all to do with suggestibility. Right. Okay. Right is when we're in a vulnerable state and i would take the you know that i was in that moment vulnerable speaking right. again that particular incident in both of them the two that i've shared in, in this session both of them were vulnerable i had drunk dine i was sitting in a work uh, rather than silence and and you know the regular santo dine way of being and certain mediumship is an important part um, in the orthodox uh, lines, as well as the what's known kind of more Umbanda Santodaini lines, but nothing like this, okay? <laughs> nothing like like what was happening here. And so for me, both of these are were extremely vulnerable moments, okay, in which I am intensely grateful for my relationships with my guides, trusting my inner wisdom to immediately align with my spiritual guides not get letting things make me go all blurry and so this is a really important part to put in is what's our responsibilities in those moments as participants and and that moment sitting with that supervisor where for one shocked moment i thought could that have happened to me do you know what i'm saying and then i kind of it's just like it was so clear for me that it was a no you know, and this is, feels like it's really something else. And, but it, that vibrated, that create, as you said earlier about throwing the pebble in the pond. Yeah. That created a vibration for me that fortunately, you know, uh, at that point in my life, I had enough, as I said, sense of self 
and had done enough personal and spiritual work that I could lean into that that authenticity within me. But what about the people who haven't developed that yet? Who are put in the position where they're being told all kinds of things about themselves and all kinds of things about what they should or shouldn't be doing about it and all kinds of things about what somebody's going to do for them about it. And so this kind of level of suggestibility is something that just has to be discussed. And, yeah. you know, and people who are working in the field need to firm up, okay, am I working with a code of ethics? Am I working with colleagues? Am I making sure that I'm being authentic and also impeccable in the work that I'm doing? And for participants, okay, um, before we get to the trauma piece, okay, yeah, yeah. we'll get there in a second. I'm just going to read it from one of my books. Please. It's volume one. Uh, for those of you who don't know my books, so Ayahuasca Awakening, Volume 1 and 2. It's um, a guide to self-discovery and um, self-mastery and self-care. And so I talk about all the stages of spiritual development. And, and in choosing a teacher, spiritual group, or organization, the following guidelines. So for those of you interested, it's right here in the books. Okay, trust your own intuition. Listen to your own wisdom and intuition and your instincts. Okay? If there's if it feels like there's something off, then you know what? Take a long, slow, deep breath, and before you make a commitment, just have a look at that. Discuss it with somebody who you respect. You know, sound it out to someone you respect and say, hey, I went to this yoga class, I went to this retreat, I went to this therapist and this thing happened and I'm mm -mm, I'm not sure how I feel about it. Okay. Discuss it with somebody who you respect. Hopefully somebody who has either the training or or you know the job experience or something to be able to say, yeah, that feels a little off too. Mm -hmm. Okay. Get references from friends with people that you respect. So if you're looking at whether it's you're gonna go see a therapist or join a spiritual group, get some references. Inform yourself about the person, the organization, the path, the religion, the principles, okay, as well as the person or group responsible. Very recently, I was reviewing um, a group's website um, that was doing offering, um, let's call them sessions and mm -hmm. events, okay? And I was looking and nowhere on the website is a set of their principles or their beliefs. Nowhere on the website was a code of ethics, how they conduct themselves. Nowhere was there anything. It was just tons of pictures of them looking all kind of spiritual and, you know, hugging each other and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> okay, where's the principles? What are you, you know, you're going to be serving people stuff? What is it you actually believe? Where's your set of beliefs and principles and Where's your code of ethics? And, you know, you go on our church website and it's all right there. Principles, tenets of the faith, code of ethics. Okay. Everything is right there. Rules of the Slough. Everything is right there for people to read. You're going to be coming into our Slough. Then you need to know this is what we believe. This is what we're going to be singing and praying about. And, and you know, if you don't like it, then mm, we're not for you. God bless. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So inform yourself. Inform yourself. This responsibility lies with the participant each of us is responsible to inform ourselves 
check if the, the person or the organization has a code of ethics, okay? Do they practice sincerity and respect towards staff and students? Big clue, mm. okay? Really big clue. They, you know, there's an old, it's an old saying that, you know, you can, if you start dating someone, watch how they treat their dog, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and, and the waitress and, or waiter in the restaurant, watch how they treat them, you know? And how they treat them is going to be a good indicator of what you need to know about the person, right? So if money is involved, donations or fees or something, does the teacher organization practice accountability and transparency? In other words, do you know what people are paying? Do you know what the donations are? And do you know where the money goes? Is it a volunteer organization? Are there any paid positions? Where does the money go? These are important questions to ask if you're going to be making a donation or paying a fee. You know, when you make an appointment with your dentist, you assume you're paying for dental work, all right? You get your bill, you've had your teeth cleaning, you've had your whatever, okay, out you go. You're filing your income tax, you pay your accountant. You know what you're getting. Why is it that people go into spiritual organizations or they go into these settings where they're going to be in a non-ordinary state of consciousness and they don't ask the same questions? You know, I don't know. It's like we, something happens, some vulnerability or some, something happens and people's regular sense of accountability for their own well-being seems to drop by the wayside. Um, does the teacher organization support students and clients in difficult situations such as spiritual emergency? And if so, what resources do they offer? So you get in deep waters, you know, as you just mentioned the work Jules Evans is doing, you know, the research that he's bringing forth in the articles and uh, trying to address. You know, a lot of these people were uh, felt unintegrated, had difficult experiences. What kind of, and this happens, this can happen in everyday life. You don't have to go and take a substance to have a spiritual emergency or to have some kind of crisis in your personal life. This can happen spontaneously or as a result of a divorce or a new job or giving birth or your dog dying or I mean, there's all kinds of things that can set this off. So the role of human guides is to help to teach and to be role models, not to direct your life or make your decisions for you. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I think it's imperative. Yeah. Yeah, offer to help, to teach, offer teachings, offer, and to be a role model. Okay. <clears throat> okay, my final word of advice is do not be gullible. Okay, now this is for some, this is a lifetime lesson. Okay. All of us can, who was it who said, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Yep. Get it right? Okay. Got it. Yeah, okay. So we all have to take responsibility, all of us, for our own suggestibility and our own gullibility. You know? So never give up your personal power to anyone else. You are the master of your own life. Agree? Yeah. Which is difficult for someone who is in transition or who is very vulnerable. They're looking for that direction. That's right. And, and a good guide or teacher will keep reminding them the direction is inside of you. 
The yeah. source is inside of you. The wisdom is inside of you. All we're doing is creating a space for that authenticity and wisdom to grow. No teacher or guide or facilitator mm. should take responsibility or ownership of somebody else's growth, healing, transformational process. The same way a good, a good midwife does not take responsibility for their baby. Okay. Yeah. Hey, I just helped baby arrive. You know, I didn't create baby. I just helped baby arrive. Okay. Yes, you can thank me. And that's great. Just doing my job. Okay. And that's the level that people working in the field of antigens and psychedelics need to have. I didn't produce the baby. I just helped the baby arrive and helped the mother give birth to the baby. And so if we have that kind of, you know, authenticity and, and healthy boundaries, then we are going to be supporting people. If we start taking the power into ourselves, okay, I'm such a great healer and I'm such a this and I did that. Wow, and, okay, that's a big problem. I heard a good quote that, that I think sums up a lot of, of things for me that helps me see clearly, almost like a lens to look through. And it's that when the instrument becomes the in, becomes institutionalized, it loses its ability to, to work. And if you look at healing as an instrument, of a, a, a self-instrument, like, like you had mentioned before, the healing is in all of us. But when people decide that they, are, they institutionalize healing, like all of a sudden the healing no longer works in the way which it should. Cause you, the, the healing happens inside of you, right? Like no one does the healing for you. And that maybe that speaks to the idea of, of the mentor or the leadership position when they're asking you questions instead of giving you advice, like in the Zen movement, they give you these koans where you can think about things versus telling you what your problem is. And, and, you know, and that's a delicate dance. Okay? Yeah. It's a delicate dance because, again, the accountant has to say to you, mm, your yeah. expenses are too high. Okay. And right. your dentist has to say, are you flossing regularly? Okay. And, and, and so on some level, there's a delicate dance in the area of psychology, you know, um, personal growth, uh, you know, that whole uh, spectrum of, uh, that includes personal transformation, personal growth, self-exploration, and the various and sundry different, um, you know, uh, professions that have been serving that through a long period of time, you know. Now, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing some of your questions and I'm thinking, well, these are really great questions, you know. Um, are people thinking about them? Are people considering them? Are people looking at really taking ownership of their own personal transformation or are they tossing it on to? You know, lots of people just want to go to the shaman and have the shaman remove that thing. Mm -hmm. And that's, how is that different from people who just go, simply to a psychiatrist and say, give me a pill to make this go away. Now, I am not at all criticizing the place of pharmaceuticals in the role of health. Hey, grateful for anesthetic when I'm doing <laughs> it. Okay? And I have dodgy hips with arthritis and bursitis, so if I scooch around when we're talking, that's what's happening for me. I love my cortisone shots, okay? Well, you know, the bursitis, all the arthritis, everything cools down for a few months. So please, no one here that I am, you know, uh, really saying the entire pharmaceutical. Now, like any industry, the pharmaceutical industry, 
with all of the psychiatric medications and, um, you know, that are used in psychology and, and psychiatry. Okay, and general practitioners are prescribing them at the same time. So all the anti-anxieties and the antidepressants and things like that. I'm not speaking about them. I think that they, against them, they have their place. They can be really helpful for helping a person, you know, who's been through a very difficult or challenging experience. They can help them sleep. They can help them come to terms with their grief or their loss or their difficulties. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it's not, should never be the only solution. Okay. Mm Because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It can be an very important part of addressing and resolving and definitely there are some conditions where medication is essential okay and that's just a reality where you know there's a spectrum of well-being and there's there's a full spectrum of it a continuum of it and there are definitely some people who really do require medication for their psychological or psychiatric you know stability and um and then there's other people who can just use it for a short period of time as part of a program that it would include nutrition and exercise and support and perhaps in-depth exploration um to be able to come to terms with whatever it is that they're dealing with in their life you know and and does this make sense what i'm saying yeah i I think that I'm hopeful that people get a change of perspective because I think for me, and I can only speak to to me, however, it seems to me that the pain never goes away. And if you can understand that, then you know that you can't go to someone to take your pain away. And you shouldn't want to because pain is growth. But it's difficult to have that perspective of like, this is with me forever. It's part of me. And maybe it's not such a bad thing, but when you try to eradicate a part of yourself that's trying to help you grow, that's when you invite the trauma. And when you when you look for the shortcut, you're inviting the person into your life or the energy into your life that's going to cause more pain because you're not facing the issue. And so I, I, I think that when people go to someone and want to have a magic pill or they want to meet a certain guru that's going to fix all their problems, they're inviting that problem right into their life. They may not be aware of it, but I think it's a perspective change. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like that movie, The Matrix, you know, where there's a guy who kind of betrays everybody and then he goes and he talks to to go back. Yeah. And plug me back in, but this time I would like you know, I'd I, I like this fake life instead yeah. of that fake life. Okay, and, and and so there are people. There are people who, from despair, desperation, um, a whole host of experiences, say, "I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Just give me the pill. Just give me the pill." Or who, in despair, uh, go and seek all kinds of. I've I've watched former clients and participants in various workshops and classes I've taught and everything like that, get to that place of despair. And instead of facing the situation, you know, I, I'm, I'm a cancer survivor, so I can actually speak to this from been there, done that, okay? And so we can panic away from the cancer or we can sit down and go, wow, this is really scary. Yeah. Okay. 
this is terrifying. Okay. I remember I was going through my psychosynthesis training when I had my diagnosis of cancer. And I remember curling up on a mat and hope, you know, the rest of the class huddling around me. And then, and, and then, um, you know, uh, one of them saying to me, Hey, <laughs> find yourself. Okay. <laughs> find yourself. You know, because that first shock of, oh, my God, mm -hmm. you have to let all the fear and the grief. And unfortunately, I was willing to do that. That in the midst of it, you have to reach down and find yourself. Mm -hmm. And 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 you know, I've watched lots of people panic and they run to all kinds of places for all kinds of solutions and every kind of possible, you know, story about panicking away from now i'm not talking about the people who who you know like what how i chose to you know relate to this the health situation and challenge which was to go deep inside of myself deepen my practice um examine my life see what i needed to do to if anything to put things back into place you know or to put into place i had children teenage children mortgage on my house which it is insured of course but still you know putting making sure everything is in place and then opening and saying okay is this my time is this my time and if this is my time then you know just I try, i'm trusting spirit show me what it is that i can do or need to do and if it's not my time then help me go through this experience with as much courage as I possibly can find and making good decisions for my well-being mm -hmm. and the well-being of my family you know and I'm, I'm please don't anybody think it was an easy time because yeah. it certainly wasn't an easy time and I'm immensely grateful to my family my dear friends who were supportive and especially my therapists yeah. <laughs> okay <laughs> passing Kleenex <laughs> <laughs> so you know there's 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 what do we do do we run away from it and try and find a way like plug me into another life this isn't mm -hmm. happening um and or, or do we come to terms with and open up and own what's authentically going on inside and be with it you said an interesting thing george which is the pain is always there mm -hmm. now i've had teachers teach me different things about this and i again i'm going to try and speak from you yeah, know i've had cancer i now lost both my parents my mom died in october my dad died 27 years ago um i've lost beloved cats uh, how many beloved friends have passed away so it's not possible to have a life that doesn't have what you would say illness or suffering it's not possible to go through life without loss it's not possible so all of us have to come to terms with how am i who am i in the face who am i in the face of loss grieving challenges difficulties who am i because in the end i think that's the last thing that we can choose i mm. can't change what's happening but i can choose how i go through it yeah uh, again in in volume one of my books i'm quite sure it's volume one i talk about decisions if it's not there it's in volume two sorry um <laughs> it, 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 i talk about decisions and choices and that in and sometimes the final choice that we have is what state of consciousness we're going to have as we're going through an experience that's difficult for us what state of consciousness am i going to have am i going to be all frightened closed down mm -hmm. 
fire screaming through it. Well, yeah, if you need to do that for a while, then you go ahead and do that for a while. Make sure you get the good support you need to do that mm -hmm. for a while, you know. And, and, and but at some point that needs to run down. That needs to, at some point you start to feel, okay, I'm kind of the well of whatever it is, grief, loss, fear, whatever is starting to empty you now. It's starting to, um, and, and what ha what is happening is not that the pain goes away and not that the pain is always there. It's that we grow around it. So mm -hmm. it's not so much that the, the pain or the loss or the trauma or what have you is so much shrinking, although it may be, but what's happening is we are growing around it. And what I, I would say that to, you know, all my clients through all the decades, I worked with people nearly four decades. And the other thing I would say is, yes, you have a wound. Yeah, you have a wound. That was wounding, whatever the thing was. Okay. That was wounding, but you don't, you don't need to keep it a big gaping open wound. You know, when we have a cut, we don't just leave it all open and bleeding. We make sure it's clean. We make sure it's protected. We put the right uh, ointments on it to make sure if we have to take antibiotics, we have a freshen our tetanus shot, whatever it is we have to do. We take responsibility for that physical wound and we do what we can to heal it and make sure that the body gets what it needs. And now with the soul wound, we get mm. what the soul needs. So what does the soul need? to heal wounds. Because what I tell people is it won't be a big gaping open wound that you just kind of cover up and ignore or deny. What it will be will be a scar. There will always be a scar. Yeah. But it'll be a scar. It won't be a great big bleeding wound, you know? And so, you know, we all have our scars and we can look at our scars as our red badge of courage. <laughs> And my scars from my surgery, from my cancer, or the one on my leg, it's like really obvious, you know? And um, some people will ask me about it. You, you know, it's like, did you get a short bite? Or, you know, so, some people are convinced that's from a motorcycle bike. It's like, oh, it's cancer. <laughs> and so, you know, owning your scars, not being ashamed of them. They're your mm. courage. You know, um, my daughter, uh, lived and studied in South Africa for a while. And um, she was doing her doctorate there at the University of Cape Town. And I went and spent a month with her to explore and travel. And it was a blissful, wonderful month. Um, anyway, she picked up wisdom. And I'm sure it was her who shared this with me, you know. Uh, and if not, then I've read it. And certainly I believe the Clarissa Pincola Estes, her wonderful book, Women Who Run With the Wolves. Mm. I think she just addresses this is that letting our scars become our badge of courage where we can say uh well this is where i fought the lion and i won you know and and that really totally went into my heart so and this is african and indigenous um truth and wisdom you don't hide your scars and get embarrassed of them and run for you know cosmetic surgery on absolutely everything which is our culture okay and i'm not against cosmetic yeah. surgery i am not okay for people who feel that it's an important part of of their own authenticity then you know that's your choice it's your body you get to do what you want i'm just saying that some of us have scars that we can choose to say hey that's my red badge of courage that's where i fought cancer and i won you know hey i won so yeah. it's all about 
how we deal with, we're really moving around vulnerability, whether it's about our body and whether it's about our soul and whether it's about where we're positioned in life. Mm -hmm. And we're also kind of edging around that word trauma, right? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I'm going to put it into a bit of a continuum now. So there was yeah. this whole thing with UFOs that kind of came and disappeared and kind of just melted and eased off. And mm, I don't know, I, we don't see anything about it anymore. And then there was this false memory syndrome, which was like a huge issue. And, you know, a little bit of this has, has, has come back because people, you know, like Jules Evans, are, are starting to talk about, hey, be careful that it was suggestibility that you're not planting it a false memory, okay? That you're not doing that. And so if, you know, the, the instinct is to try and help and fix other people, mm. we need to be careful that we're actually not making more problems than already existed. So, so here we have trauma. There's a lot of conversation about trauma these days. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Please don't anybody here. I'm saying a bad thing. It's not because what's been in the closet has to come out of the closet. <laughs> you know, yeah. it just has to. It has to come out of the closet and walk around for a while. Okay, but we don't have to set it up on a pedestal. I have a father who uh, was an officer in the British Army, and he went. He fought through World War Two. And I'm sure he had some post-traumatic stress disorder, but he just never talked about it. He was British. It was 1940s. You know, they knew from World War One about what they called shell shock. Okay, and um, then it became um, I forget. There was another term they used for a while until it became post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. Uh, it's real. It's absolutely real, and um, nobody is going to deny that the human experience is a spectrum that can include everything from the most wonderful and glorious of experiences that is fun and full of life and, and the best and the best of being human and being alive, okay, down to the most difficult and tragic and you know, all we have to do is look at the news and see, I mean, right now there's, what, 32 different wars mm. around the world. Thirty, I think it's 32, maybe it's up to 34, who knows. Okay, and the war of the moment is the one that's on the evening news, and it'll shadow out the other wars, okay? But there's, what is this human experience that we can't live in peace? Well, it seems like we can't. <laughs> and that's a reality, is we can't live in peace. And we need to take ownership that a large percentage of the human population is going to choose to, well, they're going to make other decisions. Now, how do we deal with what happens when people choose to not live with respect and peaceful and authenticity? And we're going to have, let's call it trauma. Okay. So it's always been there. You can read any ancient texts you want. Jesus talked about it. There'll always be war. There'll always be poverty. There'll always be illness. Buddha talked about it. No one escapes illness or suffering. We all age. We all die. Life is difficult. Okay, so all the great spiritual teachers talk about it. Yes, 
Now, how do we, as I said, bring it out of the closet with us putting it on a pedestal? Because there's something that seems to be happening. And and if if I if you, if you can bear with me, there's a an article uh, maybe based on a book by Lexi Pandell and Fox talking about how trauma became the word of the decade. Mm-hmm. Okay, and like can, if I can just read one or two. Yeah, please. So this person is saying trauma is real. It can result in real disorders. We all agree. As I said, having a dad who was part of the troops, um, releasing Berger Belton, um, Belson, uh, one of the death camps, okay, who was stationed in Germany for part of the war, who saw things, you know, before the war, he was uh, just stationed outside of the Quetta earthquake. So it was happened 30 kilometers away. He watched the whole city go to rubble. He was with just, he was a major in, in the British army. He took, you know, his troops that were immediately there. I think he was captain at that point. He, he took them in as soon as the dust was starting to settle. And I'll never forget what he said. Where do you start? Mm. Where do you start? Where do you start with something so enormous? And so we're seeing this on the news, more or less, every night. And so we know it's real. No one's going to be denying this. However, there's something that's happening. Um, he talks about the DSM-5, the Standard American Psychiatric Diagnosis, which is not my Bible, but it's an important part of the conversation, right? right. Um, currently, currently defines it as an actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence, either being the wit- victim or the witness. So that's the actual definition. So what's happening is the definition of trauma is changing. What my father experienced in the war was traumatic. He watched people dying. He opened, <laughs> assisted in opening, you know, uh, death camp, concentration camp. He, he he saw, lived these experiences, you know. And so nobody's going to deny that it's real. He came home full in body, which was kind of a miracle. So um, given how many people lost their lives and lost, you know, part of their functionality. So getting back to this, growing attention to the term has pushed forth a larger acknowledgement of the indirect and long-lasting consequences of violence. And and what the author is saying is this is long overdue. It's like this had to come out of the closet. It had to have it, it has to have its time of walking around. But we can't pretend it's like this is the only trauma that happened. We have to see that trauma is something that's part of the human experience. And that there aren't just a few people who suffered a particular trauma, but the trauma is part of the, the story of the human race. And then how do we how do we come to acknowledge this and, and how do we support it and understand it with, again, I'm gonna keep using that term without putting it on a pedestal. So some who study trauma, however, say that current cultural references to the word have become a mess, okay? <laughs> This is on quote, this is not me saying this. So it's tongue-in-cheek, casual mentions mixed up with serious confessions and interrogations of the past with definition misunderstandings from the absurd to the trivial, the profound and the sincere. So I'm saying what courage this person has to step up and saying, hey, wait a minute. This isn't a one-size-fits-all word. Why has it become a one-size-fits-all word? 
you know, we can't, the trauma of, of say, being bullied at school, mm. um, which so many people, I mean, oh, come on, did anybody actually go through school without being either the bully or the bullied or the bystander? I mean, is there anybody? If somebody is, please write to me on LinkedIn, okay? Because you're either the bully, the bullied, or the bystander in school. When are we going to take ownership of the fact that the human race is actually an aggressive race and that children by nature can be unkind. I was a child in school. I had children in school. I have grandchildren in school. And when they, they're describing behavior that I saw in school and that my children saw in school and experienced in school, and they're witnessing the exact same behavior. So all of these things that we do doesn't seem to actually address that, does it? Or, or uh, do we just have to have a whole different conversation about this and an understanding about this and find a, a way to, to kind of manage it in, in a different way or put it into a different thing? Because just trying to say that everybody is traumatized, okay, and then, okay, where do we go from there? You know? Like, I don't want my identity to be, you, you know, I will say I'm a cancer survivor, but that's not my identity. That's an experience that I had that I got mm. a tremendous amount of wonderful support in that I'm very grateful that, yes, I survived. Thank you very much. It wasn't my time. Okay. But it's not my identity. You know, it's something that happened to me that was really scary. And I'm really glad that it's going to happen again. And fingers crossed. Okay. Yeah. But do you know, am I making sense about trauma becoming an identity instead of an experience? Is this making some sense? Because I'm finding my way in this conversation. I actually haven't had this conversation in a public forum yet. So, uh, you know, any listeners, please be patient with me. And, and thank you, George, for your patience. Because this is a finding, finding my way with the conversation and just wanting to air it out and see, you know, where it goes. A couple more quotes from this. Trauma is one of those words that can mean anything, says Michael Shearing, a medical doctor, professor at Tulane University, author of the book, The Trouble with Trauma. It can mean I was stuck in tra traffic, that was traumatic. My football team lost, that was traumatic. That's the way it's now used in our culture. This is a quote of his from his book, The Trouble with Trauma. The word hasn't simply been watered down, but adopted widely as a kind of cultural touchstone. I have trauma as a statement is now the, in the same category as I'm depressed or I'm addicted to cookies, says Pamela Rutledge, a media psychologist. It has become a popular, popular idiom tossed around with diminished meaning. So what do you have to say about all that? I found this fascinating when I did a little dig into it based on a question I got asked in, a, in another lecture, which in the moment, because it was, it was part of a bunch of questions, I decided to dodge until I'd done a little bit more research, you know? <laughs> then let me, let me take a different tact on it. Maybe sure. it's a sign of, maybe it's a sign of progress. You know, maybe the fact that everybody is saying I have trauma, and people are agreeing with it. And people are on some levels. Maybe we've gotten away from my trauma is bigger than your trauma, which 
you know, is great. Okay. (laughs) This hierarchy of trauma. (laughs) Yeah. That's one of the things I'm having trouble with is, you know, that takes me right, right back to no one escapes illness or suffering. Right. And, and the beautiful Zen story of the woman who, you know, was sent by the Zen master to find the grain of rice and she has to find it in the village where there's been no loss or suffering. Okay. And she comes back a year later and says, I'm, I'm healed because in the sharing of my story, mm-hmm. no one has escaped illness or suffering. So if it take, if this current conversation about trauma takes us to a place of sharing, of mm. compassion, of support. Hey, I'm right in there with it. If, however, it starts to separate us mm. into a hierarchy, my trauma is more important than your yeah. trauma. I have a problem with that. Okay. I don't know if anybody else does. You do. <laughs> <laughs> but there okay. are. Aren't, aren't there some traumas that are more prolific or more painful than other traumas like how can you not well, that, put it that's in where we that's where do we go that's where this is exactly what those people are saying is the word has become an, a touchstone for a lot of things that it was never intended to mean mm. trauma is like er trauma you know the person's gone into cardiac arrest that's trauma <laughs> technically by, trauma. by medical standards trauma is trauma However, the word is now being an umbrella term. So I'm, I'm suggesting that maybe we, you know, we either redefine the word or we start using different words. Mm. Okay? And uh, instead of just using this word for everything, because then we're, we are going to fall into the hierarchy, which is, you know, the people who's, you know, let's just using use the war that's on the news right now. Right. Okay, The people who had bombs dropped, and their entire town is now obliterated and they can't find, you know, they're a 12 year old who can't find their father and mother or younger siblings. Okay. Because everything is a huge pile of rubble and the odds of them being able to be found alive is very slim. That's a completely different kind of trauma from when I was in grade four, somebody wasn't very nice to me. I'm sorry. It just is. It, I, I have difficulty. I'm not saying that, that, you know, the circumstances, the difficult or challenging circumstances that we have in our life are they're ours. And a broken finger that I have is, isn't in comparison to your broken leg. Okay. My broken finger hurts me. Your broken leg hurts you. But how do we get out of that dynamic that seems to be happening now where where things that are truly traumatic um are are being kind of diminished by the casual cultural use of the word this i just feel like this is a conversation needs to be hit on you know for my own understanding because i find myself getting curious about this you know, and how do we speak about it? And how do we remember? I've been, you know, nearly four decades in private practice. I'm used to holding space and coming around to 28 years in the Santo Dami. I'm used to holding supportive space. I have no problem with that and, and encourage it and that people should find supportive space and co create supportive space. And the people's stories need to be told and they need to be heard and we need to respect people's stories. But, but how do we now? deal with this cultural language thing in a way that is respectful to the people 
everybody's experience, but not lumping what I would consider to be kind of real trauma. <laughs> We're back to the hierarchy again. Sorry. No, it's, can you Help think of a different here, George? Help me out. <laughs> okay, well, as someone who has been in practice for that long, and you've seen the evolution of the definition of trauma, like you've seen it, you've seen the texture of trauma change. So, if past relevant behavior is the best predictor of future behavior, what does it, it look like moving forward? If you look on all your experience, how has trauma changed? And, and you know, is there is there an answer in there? Is there a morphology in there that you've seen that you can see a pattern with? Well, you know, I, I think that I think that this is part of it. And again, I'm just finding my way in the conversation. Yeah. So I think that there's a part of it that maybe people are talking about and maybe people aren't. But I'm going to come back to okay. that if we have this experience in our culture that I have a right to happiness, we've talked about this before, <laughs> that I, I'm entitled, you know, it's just entitled, I'm entitled to have certain things that spiritually goes against everything that i understand about the human experience you know that none of us are kind of we all get what we get we make the decisions we make and a lot of the times the difficulties we have are based on our own decisions mm -hmm. sorry but that's what i've yeah. seen i'm 74 now and i've seen a lot and lived some and it looks like a lot of the time that we have problems is because of decisions that we made or things that we denied or things we overlooked. And if we just take responsibility for that, for our part in it, um, then, you know, that really helps us to grow. Now, the mm. stuff that happens that we had no say in decision in, you know, that can be, you know, we're innocently walking along the street and something, you know, a flower pot flies off somebody's balcony and, conks us out and you know we're walking across the street and uh, you know I, I got hit on i was riding my bicycle going through the intersection on a green light a taxi jumped his red light and ran into me i had to do two years of physiotherapy you know they couldn't believe nothing was broken and my, my helmet thank god get my head safe but you know i, I didn't ask for that <laughs> so this was just stuff that happened those poor people where the bombs are dropping yeah. They didn't ask for that, you know. War is terrible, and most of us wish it would end and stop and never happen again. But that's not realistic. And so, trauma is always going to be part of the human experience. Is what I'm trying to say. How do we create a conversation in which people are able to come forward, but recognize it as being part of the human experience? That it's not a personal identity. That it's. Mm. This is making sense. That it's part of the human experience. That if we, to do our best authentic self in it and be that, that if we embrace it as an experience in which we are going to have our own reactions and that we need some support, but it's not who we are. And, and, and if we need to become it for a short period of time, you know, then that that's part of the growth of it, but it's not the end goal. And so all the people who came out of the closet needed to come out of the closet. The people who'd suffered at the hand, like the whole Me Too thing and, and, and all of the different movements that have come out and said, hey, we need to talk about this. Yes, we do. 
and it all needs to come out of the closet. It needs to have its turn walking around, being identified. My concern is let's not put it up on the pedestal and let these things not become a personal identification. But I'm a, I'm a person who had this experience. I, I'm taking what I can to, to grow and to develop with it. I'm making sure I get what I need to help me to get supported and recover from it and to make wise decisions based on who I really am and not what that experience tried to show me about who I am. Does that make some sense, what I'm saying? Yeah, but it's kind of scary, though. Like, on some level, maybe, you know, if we look at at systems, like systems and, like, Darwinism, like, maybe maybe the strong people eat the suffering people, you know, like I don't want that to happen, but on some level, if people cannot, if people are going to be pushed into trauma and they can't get out of it, those people end up becoming the, the food for the caterpillar, the, the catalyst to be for the butterfly, if that makes sense, you know, like, Maybe that's where we are as a species. Maybe maybe we are. Oh, I, I, I'm not. I'm not following okay. the whole thing of the caterpillar and the butterfly. Okay. You lost me back at okay. Okay. So if we accept that the human species is aggressive, okay, yes. So okay. Can we do that? Yes, that the human of course. Species is aggressive, and that we have to understand and our own instincts and survival instincts and our own nature, the the nature of the human species. And I don't think aggressive is a strong enough word. Can we change that? Violent. Word? Yeah, we're violent. Yes. Okay. We're a violent species. Yes. We I like are. that. Better. We are aggressive, violent, greedy, selfish. <laughs> that yes. Was, yes. All of yes. it. All of it. And we have to own that. Otherwise, it runs us. If we right. repress it and pretend we don't have it, it goes into our shadow and then it makes our unconscious decisions for us. Mm -hmm. If we recognize that that's part of being human, but we don't want it to make our decisions for us and that we want our higher self, our inner wisdom, you know, or to make those decisions for us, what's for the higher good and the betterment. Okay. Our petty self is always want to go, want to go in the other direction. Yeah. Okay. But our higher self is going to try and call us into what's for the higher good. Okay. So if we're looking at that, run it again by me, what you were trying to say about the caterpillar. Okay. And the so I think that, People, I, I don't see a middle ground. And maybe this is my personality, but I, I'm trying to find a middle ground. But it seems to me that when you take a good look at the way in which people are greedy, they're violent, they're selfish, they fight for resources, it's very difficult to beat back that group of people with a group of people that are victims. And it seems like the people in the middle are a very small group trying to be that bridge. But I don't know if that bridge can hold. I think at some point in time, you split into one of those two groups. And that, that can lead to more trauma because you don't want to be the greedy, selfish person. But on some level, you're like, okay, well, I can't be the victim. I have to do this. And so there's this dichotomy that happens. So I, th okay, that so what I'm, hearing, what I'm hearing you say is that you're, you're looking at this, the victim and perpetrator. Yeah. And that in between uh, on a global scale, not just right. in an individual situation, right. but on a global scale, that there's victims and perpetrators. Absolutely. Yeah. I address this dynamic in my book and I call it predator and prey. Mm. 
here's the thing is is everybody we have the cat and the mouse inside of us yeah we can't go looking and saying okay those are the perpetrators and those are the victims i mean we can we can look around the world but on on some other level it's inside of us you know yeah. it's inside of us and unless we take ownership that the cat and the mouse are inside of us and that one minute we can act like the cat and the next minute we're going for the mouse okay and 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 one thing that i discuss in, in books is you know the people who uh, one of the dangers of a strong identification with victim it needs to be a conscious and this we're back to trauma game it needs to be a consciously owning of that certain experiences or events happened that were challenging, difficult, awful, terrible, traumatic, whatever words fit, okay? But that's not who the identity is. I'm a person who had these experiences, and now I want to transform myself around them so that I can grow as much as possible. Maybe someone will feel mm -hmm. called to help serve other people the way former alcoholics help counsel alcoholics and the way people who survive cancer help with group work with supporting people who are cancer you know so the me too movement there's people who mentor people who were you know um mistreated and violated in their office circumstances by power uh, abuses right and so how can we support and mentor people who have had those experiences to help them grow around and beyond that. And so they're not just stuck in a victim place forever. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I just, so, I, I, I also, you know, I write about the victim and, and, and I have to say that I met not very many, but I met mm. people who wanted to be the victim, mm. who used being a victim to manipulate people around them to get what they wanted. And I read about that too. I didn't see it very often, but when I saw it, it was startling. You know, thankfully, more often what I saw was people who really wanted to grow and develop and, you know, grow around and shrink that, you know, that stuff that was hurtful or scary or what have you. But there's some people who want to cling on to victimhood because and use it for manipulation and use it for guilt and yeah. use it to get what they want from other people or culture or society or what have you. And so we're a complex species, you know, uh, and, you know, we've wandered down this <laughs> kind of tunnel. <laughs> um, um, you know, and, and let's bring it back for a moment and yeah. then we probably should be saying goodbye for the afternoon, but let's bring it back to what are we truly trying to say here? Are we trying to say that being human, just being human is a challenge hmm. and trying to understand who am I as a human being and how much of me is kind of hardwired in my body that I need to just understand that this is part of being the human species and, mm. and own it and take responsibility for it. And then the times that I've had as a person, as a human, difficult experiences, do I do my best to not let them become my identity? Because that's a hard thing to live with. You know, as I said, short term, somebody 
has to own it. You have to own it before you can transform it. So, okay, yes, I had this terrible, awful experience. I never talked about it before. And now I see people are starting to talk about it. Yes, wonderful. Find the right forum, the right support, you know, and, and talk about it. But don't get stuck there. It's kind of like the 12-step program. You know what the 13th step is? Is addiction to, to the 12-step program? And so... I'm sorry, that's common phrase. And and so I see this with with kind of this whole kind of movement with healing and trauma and stuff. Is there so much good in it that we need to just keep focusing on the good and the goal? Mm. The goal to bring in the good and the support and to move through it and to become a whole self, right? And to to ensure that we're not using vulnerability and susceptibility. To actually create another trap for the person in which now trauma is on a pedestal there's a hierarchy of them and we're not going anywhere not growing out of it and beyond it we're busy pointing a finger as to whose trauma is worse hmm. yeah does this, does, is this is this what we're trying to say well, what yeah uh, <laughs> I do think it's what we're trying to say, but I think we lack the words and the ability to thoroughly communicate what we want to happen. Maybe we're, maybe we're just, maybe the, everything you see is you and we're, we don't have the ability to the cognitive horsepower to solve these problems. Yet. Maybe we're a species that's not quite capable of fixing these problems, but we're trying to, and all of our trauma leads to the next step in a breakthrough, you know, on a, on a species level, maybe we're just not there yet. Yes, and and, and 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 maybe we'll never get there. You know, maybe the, maybe you can't get there. Maybe it's the individual's journey. Yes, you know, and 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 if we focus on the individual journey, that the person that we can transform, heal, is ourselves. Yes, and for those who feel called to support and create a space and have the let's say the training and the credentialing and the experience and the apprenticeship to be able to create space for others to do their growing in you know then if that's the calling then that's the calling and these issues around vulnerability and susceptibility and you know the language that we use and and how we support people and use and how we're using our language so that it becomes the most supportive possible to yeah. the people that we are working with. Maybe it comes to lineage too, like the way in which you've studied with, with um, Dr. Roberto and Stanislav Grav, and then you take the you take the torch and move it forward a little bit. Then someone comes up behind you and they move it forward a little bit. Maybe, right, maybe it's- open. I'm shipping. <laughs> are you there? Are you out there? I'm looking for you, you know? Um, and, and yes, and always moving it forward. Yes. Keeping in mind that there's only some people who are going to want to be. Look at all the great teachers who came. They came, they taught, they brought the light, they brought yeah. consciousness, they brought ethics, they respect, they brought all of that. Yeah. You know, and then they left and <clears throat> they left their teachings and then people love their teachings and bring them forward. And some people take their teachings and use them for power and authority and control mm. of and so the cycle just continues. 
Anyway, it's been a great conversation. I love it. It was so much fun. I hope we actually, you know, brought the conversation, the discussion forward and maybe aired out, you know, got it out of the closet a little bit more. And um, hopefully it will provide more conversations about how to hold this space and what words to use and how to use those words so they become supportive and um and and support growth and development and transformation in positive ways i think anybody who's listening to this should definitely go to your new website that has a wonderful flow of information and the colors on there are perfect and it kind of calls out to anybody who goes there and when they go there they can check out your books ayahuasca awakenings volume one and volume two which are guidebooks that people can thumb through and find something that calls to them they're wonderful and i i would invite everyone to go down and 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 go to the show notes and check that out but before i let you go where can people where is the best place to find you and what do you have coming up um okay well if anybody's interested i'll be in ottawa on the 7th december the 7th i think i posted it on linkedin it might be you might find it somewhere it's actually uh, for the last few years now, I just want to do a shout out to Dr. Angelali, Dr. Monica Williams, um, and, and some others, those two particularly, then Dr. Paul Groff, but those two particularly who've worked so hard to put together the, really, I think it's the first um, graduate level psychedelics program at a University of Ottawa. And I had the great pleasure of being their first guest lecturer. I'm an advisor to the program and support it fully. Uh, and uh, so I'll be speaking there on Thursday. It's actually an uh, interfaculty. It's to Paul Groff and I are going to be speaking in the morning, and then I believe the afternoon is uh, some, I believe, graduate and doctoral students presenting some of their research and their work in the field. So it is, um, although it wasn't widely publicized, anybody in the Ottawa area, I'm not sure if there's live streaming, find it in my LinkedIn posts, and um, you're welcome to join. And other than that, I'm hoping to take a little wee break for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And it's been an, a kind of a very busy period of time. People who are looking to find me, you can find me through my website. I may need to be a teeny bit patient. Um, I check often. and Or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I know a lot of people try to find me on Facebook or Instagram or um, you know some of the other places. But I'm really not busy on those. Um, I really don't look that often i don't i'm not active on facebook although i do have a page for a specific reason um i'm really not active on it so please don't be offended if i don't friend you i just i can't keep up so linkedin i do regularly so you can find me there on my website well fantastic and i really enjoyed the time and the conversation i really appreciate it and ladies and gentlemen i hope you have a wonderful day and that's all we got for today so ladies and gentlemen aloha Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge 
well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.